I have our um, Jitsi on, which is sort of like a Zoom in case anyone wants to jump on. We might see somebody come on there. Who knows? Um, so this is like uh, super exciting for me to have. And this is Daniela. <laughs> She's a paralegal and singer also. So yeah, everyone's kind of all hands on deck here. We do we play a lot of different parts. Um, this is Tommy. Tommy's paralegal as well. Um, but this is exciting for me to have um, Dr. Willis here. Um, I can say he was my friend before he was my teacher. <laughs> we became friends, um, kind of, it was the Lord. <laughs> and I actually had, he's a speaker, author, professor, academic dean. Um, he writes, he has an amazing website and blog. Um, you should get on his blog. And, that's Beginning to Pray is the uh, website. And then how do they get on your blog? If you, just you, you can Google search Beginning to Pray, but it's beginningtopray.blogspot.com. You want to get on that. You want to read his blog. Mm -hmm. It's super deep and amazing. Um, but I had randomly read one of his blogs. I was I followed somebody on Twitter, they posted one of his articles, I read it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is really good, and I sent him a tweet <laughs> of like, and the reason why I did is I thought, oh, actually, I was thinking of this book, Father Dubay, right? If you read on the back, it says he's been giving prayer retreats for like 30 years, right? And I always wanted to go hear Father Dubay do a prayer retreat. In fact, um, early days in the prayer room, uh, one of our singers, we were all reading Fire Within because um, Kansas City um, Prayer Room, Mike Bickle is like all about this book. He goes, this book needs to be the manual of IHOP. Wow. Yeah, and so all their interns read it, everybody, everybody reads it. And so um, we were all reading it and one of my worship leaders says, we should get Father Dubé out for a prayer retreat. And I'm like, that would be amazing. And somehow she found me a phone number, and I called him. <laughs> and somebody answered the phone, um, and I, I told her, you know, we have a praying community, and we wondered if we could get Father Dubé to come give us a prayer retreat. She said, well, he's kind of old now. He doesn't really travel anymore. But let me connect you. Ding, Father Dubé here, and I'm like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I started to talk to him in person, and I was just like so in shock. But we had the most beautiful conversation for like 15 minutes, and I told him about the prayer room in Kansas City and what Mike Bickle says about his book and how we're all reading it. And um, we're not Catholic, but we pray a lot. We, you know, love his book. And he was like, I, I think he didn't know, you know, any of that. And he was like, oh. He said, he's like, hmm. He's like, who did you say his name was again? And I'm like, Mike Bickle. He goes, maybe I've heard of him. Anyways, and then he goes, surely you've heard of the perpetual adoration movement in the Catholic Church. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so then he started telling me about 24-hour houses of prayer, like adoration rooms, and kind of some background on that, and I was really intrigued. I was like, whoa, I had no idea, you know? And so we just had the most beautiful conversation, and I felt his love 
You know, I just felt like he was so kind, so nice. He took time for me on the telephone. You know, I mean, this is like a major author, you know? And he just like, hello, you know? And I'm like, what? <laughs> so it was just, it's, it was really one of my, such a gift from the Lord that I got to speak to him. And now he's with the Lord. He's with the Lord. He's, he died, and, I, and actually I didn't know that for a while. And then when I found his obituary online, I wept because I'm like, who is doing what this man did? You know, writing these works that help you to go to union with God. And this is the most amazing book that way. It's practical, it's theological, it's biblical. It gives you, you know, the theology, the practical, the, you know, examples from saints. It's so, so helpful. And I just wept because I'm like, who's doing that, you know? Like, that is what needs to happen in the world. So, um, so anyways, when I read Anthony's blog, I was like, I bet you he's doing that. <laughs> that's why I tweeted him, because I'm like, this man gives prayer retreats. I know it, you know? That's what I felt. So I asked him that, and he goes, yes, I do. Email me, you know? And so we started this friendship and conversation, and then I had the privilege to um, be a student of his because this school, Avalon Institute, opened up, um, and Anthony and Dan Burke were kind of the founding um, fathers of this online school, Avalon Institute, and Anthony developed all this curriculum. And um, I was super privileged because I kind of got in on it on the ground floor, and so I got to have him for nine graduate courses, which was the most amazing thing because God had put it on my heart after I read so much of his website and his blog and his books. I was like, I want to learn from him. And I didn't think it would ever happen. I didn't know how it could happen. And yet, this school opened up, and it, it happened. And I was just like, whoa. Like, I was terrified because I was like, now I have to write papers. I'm so scared. <laughs> but it just, like, helped me to grow more than anything else probably in my whole life because... I was terrified to go back to school. I hadn't written anything for years, you know, so to have to try and like write something. But it was so, such a powerful um, thing for me to be in these classes and to learn from Dr. Lillis. And um, so he's my teacher, he's my friend, he's mentor to me, and now he's in the Bay Area. And so when I met him, he, he lived in Denver. He was at um, which seminary? St. John's. That's right. And then he moved to LA and was at St. John's in Camarillo. And now he's at St. Patrick's in Menlo Park. So um, so it just worked out that he could come over and join our little group. So we feel super privileged, Anthony, that you would come over because he's a busy man. <laughs> and for him to make time for us, I feel super privileged, humbled, and that very generous uh, uh, introduction. Um, Amy and Dan are amazing people, as you know, and their faith, uh, I think, has touched many, many people. I, I uh, uh, knew that uh, there were, uh, my world is very Catholic. However, 
My, my mother was uh, a Baptist and became Catholic when she married my mom. Oh, married my dad, but I gotta get the gender thing right. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the, um, when they got married, um, my dad was not a very devout Catholic. He would go to Mass on Christmas and Easter like a lot of Catholics do. And, um, and she had had a, a personal encounter with the Lord that she found her Catholic faith deepened and she started talking to him about his faith. And, and he, when he died, he, he died very, very devoted to the Lord because of, of her faith, her witness to him. And so my, when I grew up then, his, uh, my dad, dad died when I was a child, when I grew up, um, uh, 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 part of my world was always kind of the Protestant evangelical world, and um, I had Pentecostal friends, and uh, I, I grew up in Santa Cruz, and, and uh, probably one of the great ministers who uh, 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 really got into my family was this surfer guy who used to, who used to surf out at Steamers Lane and then invite everybody to his parish, wow. uh, his church, and, and up in Belton. And, um, and so I, I knew when Amy was writing me that the Holy Spirit moves in very powerful ways uh, uh, among all kinds of believers. And, uh, and he always does what we don't expect him to. You know, he, he, he doesn't follow the way we imagine things. He has his own plan. And uh, as Amy shared with me about the prayer furnace and about the International House of Prayer and this movement to have uh, prayer 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it coincided with something that was very important to me and my wife, Agnes. When we lived in, I, I was a student in Rome, and I actually lived near where St. Paul was beheaded. Mm -hmm. uh, I lived at Tre, out by Trey Fontani, and, and um, um, in my parish church was the, the, the church where that celebrated St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And um, um, the, um, uh, while I was out there, my wife worked with Mother Teresa. You know Mother Teresa of Calcutta? And a lot of people know about Mother Teresa, her work with the poor. And, um, but not as many people realize that uh, her life was extremely prayerful. And that she believed that the number one thing that could heal families today, she believed that families and marriages were in crisis. And the thing that could heal them is a return to prayer. And so wherever, wherever she went, everybody knew about her apostolic works, feeding people and so forth, or being with the dying, but not as many people knew that what she was doing while she was doing that was she was teaching people to pray. And when she was in Rome, my wife worked with her to help teach, uh, uh, get bishops to see how important it was for Catholics to pray 24 hours a day seven days a week, that we need to always be in prayer. And this, um, that was the beginning of a movement in the church back in the 90s that, that I think is, is more fruit. Not the kind of fruit that in the geopolitical thing, you'll never see it on CNN news. 
you know, I don't think you'll ever get NBC coming here with cameras to check, check out what you do. But the most important things that are happening in the world right now are happening in prayer groups like this, happening here. And, uh, you know, um, the Lord sent you here because this part of the world needs prayer. You live on the, the edge of the Pacific Rim. Uh, uh, it's the, uh, it was considered in, uh, in the 18th century when they, we first, the first evangelization efforts happened in California. This was considered the uttermost edge of the world. And the Lord has sent you to the uttermost edge of the world to be a light to the nations and to beg for a pouring out of the Holy Spirit in this area that needs it so much. So you have been chosen by him for a great work. And, uh, and I, I guess my first thing as a fellow believer with you is to thank you for saying yes to him. Um, and so today I want to talk to you a little bit about fire within and, um, and, and to set, set that up, uh, I, I can tell you I, I got to see Father uh, give talks to a seminary that uh, I, I helped found a seminary in Denver, Colorado called John Danny Seminary. And we knew that in order to have renewal in the church, we needed uh, the renewal of the life of prayer, spiritual renewal, and everybody who was going under formation for the ministry. And we were just like Amy. We were trying to figure out who does this kind of work. And uh, the Lord sent us some um, really amazing teachers, but one of the ones he sent was Father Thomas Dubay. And he came and he spent the day with our faculty, and he spent the day with our students, uh, and got to talk to him one-on-one -on -one and, and see it, and uh, he dedicated his life to providing spiritual formation, and, and by that, I mean, he embraced a life of extreme poverty, and uh, he was celibate for the Lord, he never got married, he was under obedience, uh, uh, and he did all of that because he wanted to be completely docile to the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit might ask and prompt him to do just like saying yes to a group uh, that, uh, uh, that you know, here he is a old, in old age and at the end of his career, the Lord opens up a brand new door for him and, and he finds out that he's bearing fruit where, where he didn't even know he was bearing fruit you know, and um, he had a special devotion to, uh, to the Lord through the writings and teachings of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. And uh, I, I wanted to share a little bit about who they were and a little bit about their life. He tells you about them a little bit in his book. Uh, and I'm, uh, and, uh, but what I want to do most of all today is give you kind of like the principles that are underneath their writings 
that he's kind of describing and making practical application toward to. And um, and so this was, and he, after that meeting with him, he inspired me. I thought, you know, his book has bore so much fruit. You know, other people need to do this. Uh, you know, it's it's good, it, it's good to know the gospel of Christ, and it's good to share the gospel of Christ, but the Lord calls us to share the gospel with our own words. That means he wants our lives to witness. That means through all the brokenness and poverty and voids and inadequacies, that's where his glory shines. It's in our weakness that his strength is brought to perfection. So when I said, say in our own words, when you read A Fire Within, you're getting a window into the soul of all the struggles and hardships that Father Duvet suffered for the sake of Christ because he wanted the love of Christ to shine through him. And, uh, and I saw that in his work and I thought, I thought, well, we need to keep this going. Uh, and, 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 you know, every generation we need to put the gospel into, um, into our own words. And um, so Father Dubay, he, he um, uh, uh, this, this amazing priest, why is for him John of the Cross and, and Teresa of Avila uh, so important? What is the principles that he discovered in the writing? Well, the first number one principle that I wanted to share with you today, without any talking to you any about this at all, um, uh, so, um, uh, and Josiah, we, we, didn't, we didn't talk before this, did we? No, I don't think we talked for a few years since we had dinner together. Yeah. <laughs> so, the number one principle that I, I wanted to share with you today is Jesus' prayer that he offers that we just sang. And um, he says to the Father, Father, I will that where I am, those whom you have given to me might also be in order that they might see the glory that you have given me because you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the image of the Father. So whenever we see something in Jesus, we see the truth of the Father. What do we see in Jesus in those words? What is, he shows us his deepest heart desire. And in showing us his deepest heart desire, he is showing us the Father and what the Father desires. This is the love that made the whole universe and brought us into existence and establishes you in existence right now. You would not be here breathing this breath right now that Jesus has given you if, if the Father is not right now loving you into existence and willing you to have this heartbeat and this breath. And think of all the heartbreak beats and all the breaths that we have taken and not been mindful of how good he's been to us. 
or even betrayed the gift that he's given us. And yet, he gives it anyway. He is so generous and patient and tender in his gift, he just pours out more and more and more. And so we exist here and now, and we can share this time we have together. And we, we, we live and move and have our being in his son, the word. And the word, what is the word? The word, the one who makes sense out of it all, the one who's filled with meaning. We live and move and have our being in pure meaning, eternal meaning. And what is this meaning? Jesus reveals us what this meaning is. It's not manipulation, we're not commercialized products, cogs in the industrial wheel of religion. We are the beloved sons and daughters of God, of the Father. The Father knows you and loves you and treasures you. He knew you before the foundation of the world. So before there was time, he knew you and he treasured you, and what he saw and treasured moved him with such love, he summoned you into existence at just the right time. There is nothing, this means, there is nothing in your life that is an accident. Everything is just according to the immensity of the love of God. This doesn't mean that there aren't some evil things that have happened to us that God would wish that never happened to us and that have broken his heart and he um, he's not indifferent instead he's chosen to take our side and he's implicated himself in our plight the um the other beautiful aspect of that thing, so that was just on before the foundation of the world. Uh, the other thing, I think about this just for a moment. This gives us a little, uh, we're not even talking about the most important thing yet, where. We're, we're building up to where we have to go back through the verse to get to where. The next powerful thing in that, in that verse is what does the Father give to Jesus because he loves Jesus from before the foundation of the world? Well, the thing closest to that statement, he, because he loved me for, before the foundation of the world, is glory. So the Father has given Jesus glory from before the foundation of the world because he loves him. But not only has the Father given love Jesus from before the foundation of the world and given him glory this is the amazing part the father has given Jesus you and me you are the gift of the father to his son because he has loved his son from before the foundation of the world The father who treasured you wanted his son to have the very best, the most beautiful, most wonderful, most heartbreaking gift that you could give. And he chose to bring you into existence so that he could bring, give you to his son. 
You are treasured by Jesus because Jesus sees you as a gift from the Father. How you treat the giver, how you treat the gift, reveals how you treat the giver. Jesus will never throw you away. He will never give up on you. Because you are a gift from the Father. The Father has given him because he has loved his Son from before the foundation of the world. And that love is the most primal, most real, most absolute thing there is. No other force can compare to it. No power in the heavens above or on the earth below can thwart it. No army can stand and face it down. It overwhelms, it overflows. It is unstoppable, it is unbreakable, it's unconquerable. That is the love. And you are a gift in that love. So now, what now that you see that you are a gift from the Father to Jesus, what does Jesus want to do with his gift? Jesus wills, desires, that you be where he is. Um, in, the, in the Catholic Church, we just celebrated, in the last 14 days, we just celebrated two very powerful events. One event was Jesus ascended up into heaven. And so we call that the, the Feast of the Assumption. And it was important that Jesus ascended to heaven because by ascending into heaven, Amy, as you said, he opened up access. You know, do you know that if you study world religions, there's all kinds of world religions that believe in some sort of sky god. And in the most primitive forms of religions, the, these cultures all around the world, um, uh, their most primitive form is they believe in one God who is above everything else. But at some time in their history, they stop calling him because, because he's too remote from their affairs. And so they invent other gods. Jesus opened us up to the God that our first parents worshipped. The living God who walked with them in paradise. He opened that threshold so that we could walk with God again. So that we might see him face to face. And Jesus wills that where he is, walking with the Father, beholding him face to face, we might also be, in order that we might see the immensity of the love of the Father, the glory that the Father gives to his Son is inexhaustible. And he yearns for us to see it. The, um, the, there was a great father of the church, St. Ignatius of uh, Antioch, was in the very first centuries of the church, and actually in the first hundred years of the church, he was, he was martyred. He had sat at the feet of Peter and Paul, heard their preaching. Oh. 
Whoops, wrong guy. <laughs> I'll tell you another story about him another time. <laughs> the one I meant to tell you about was St. Irenaeus, who lived about 50 years after, after St. Ignatius. St. Saint, uh, Irenaeus, he, um, he, he's the one who said this. He said, the, the glory of God is man fully alive. But the life of man is the vision of God. What you behold, what you see with the eye of your heart, stamps your existence. We're meant to see God. Why? Because we're in his image and likeness. We're meant to be stamped by his existence. Jesus right now in a sacred humanity. Yes. Is that what, one more time? Yeah. <laughs> the, the glory of God is man fully alive. And the life of man is the vision of God. The pure in heart will see God. The pure of heart will see God. That's right. Jesus, that great beatitude. Jesus yearns for us to be where we can see the Father and, and behold his glory. And when we live life to the full, we somehow are that full. That's what this means. When we live our lives completely dedicated, converted to the Lord, the glory of God shines forth through us. And, and, and so we see it, and it stamps us. It helps us become the truth of who we are. So this is part of the mystery of being a human being, to be in the image and likeness of God. God who is God? God is the one who is totally incomprehensible. You're in the image and likeness of somebody totally incomprehensible. Can't figure out your son or daughter? It's because they're in the incomprehensible image and likeness of God. Can't figure out your parents? Same thing. Can't, can't figure out your spouse? Same reality. Image and likeness of God. We can never figure them out. Can't figure yourself out? Are you a secret unto your own self? Yes, you are. Because you are in the image and likeness of God. But when you behold him, you, you become like unto him. Because you see him face to face. You are children of God. And Jesus, in other words, wants us to be in that place where the truth of ourselves is finally realized. Where the reality of who we are is made known. There's one more aspect to this glory that uh, is foundational in um, Thomas Dubé's teaching and John Foster's about. This, um, this glory was most manifest to the world when Jesus offered himself for our sake on the cross. When he was most powerless, when he was uh, seemingly most destroyed in the eyes of the world, in, his, in what was weak, in, in sorrow and loss, in bearing the consequences of our sin, he accomplished the greatest work that could possibly be done. And what did Jesus say? 
unless you renounce yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus longs for you to be where he is. But to go where he is, to go where the master is, we must renounce ourselves, take up the cross that he's entrusted us with, and follow him because in that cross, his glory is revealed. With, um, with this then, I, uh, let me just talk to you a little bit more about this place. Uh, the thing about picking up our cross and going where the Master leads us, following in the footsteps of our crucified God. Um, here's the rub. No matter how hard you try on your own, it's really hard to embrace that cross, <laughs> and it's impossible to carry it. <laughs> I can't even get past the renounce yourself part. <laughs> Um, we need Jesus' help the whole time. And this prayer of Jesus that he offers, where he says, this is what I desire, and he tells the Father this, this opens up the floodgates of mercy so that whatever we need to renounce ourselves, the Father is already giving you now. Have confidence and believe. Whatever you need to embrace that cross and to carry it. The Father's already giving it to you now. Because you've done something great and good? No. Because he loves his son. And his son has asked for this. And the Father never denies his son. And so the Father will never deny you. If you ask, the Father will always give. Always. This pathway of discipleship leads to this place, this heavenly place that we read, where the gate of heaven, come and see, we were seeing. Come and see uh, the glory of heaven. There are things that I want to show you there. Saying that. Well, Jesus wants us to be with the Father because there's things He wants us to see. He wants us to see the Father's love. He wants us to know in our hearts the Father's plan. And and I, I'll uh, I, I'll never forget. I went to a Young Life thing, and my friend's dad was preaching was preaching the the gospel, and. You know, I was a smart aleck, high school kid, you know, so I knew all about the gospel. And, and at the end of his preaching, I, you know, he, 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 he talked about the beautiful plan of the Father for our lives. And I said, yeah, but what else is there? And, you know, like, you know, you know is there something else, that, you know, behind him? And he goes, Anthony, if you only knew what you just asked, you would spend your whole life weeping over what has been given us. The Father yearns for us to see 
the unsearchable, inexhaustible riches of his love. And that is there in his heart. And this is where we're going. This is where discipleship leads us. This is where we go when we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus. And we're able to do this because Jesus is leading us there. So I, I want to just take you to one more dimension of where this place is. Um, uh, and, and then we'll go a little bit to John and Teresa. In, um, in the beautiful book of the Bible called The Song of Songs, or the Canticle of Canticles, or sometimes it's called The Song of Songs, you have these poems about a, a lover and a beloved, a bride and a bridegroom. And their love poems, some see them organized to celebrate the deep, different seasons of love. And I, I've contemplated that. I think that's there. Um, you also have, the poems are kind of like repetitive. Like in the different chapters, you, you keep on going to the same places. They're described differently, but each time you go to the same place no matter the season of love. Where is this place and what is the language that it uses? The place where the bridegroom leads, leads his beloved is, is the wine cellar. The, the wine cellar, why the wine cellar? Why does the bridegroom lead his beloved in the wine cellar? If you've ever been in a wine cellar, in France, they're kind of dusty, musty places. It's not the perfect, the place you might think of bringing your beloved. And you expect to find a couple, couple old drunk Frenchmen down there, but not, you know. <laughs> but he brings his beloved to, in the ancient world, the wine cellar was where the bridegroom and the bride pledged their troth one to the other. Mm -hmm. Why did they choose the wine cellar to be that place? They chose the wine cellar because wine is made of the fruit of the earth and man and woman were meant to live in paradise where there is the fruit of the earth. Mm -hmm. Fruit trees of every kind. And, um, and so the wine cellar for the, in the ancient world was the reconstruction of paradise. Mm -hmm. And it's, it was a place where only the most intimate friends met. And the place where promises were made one to the other. And the most wonderful and most beautiful promise of all was the promise of man and woman in marriage that God put together something that no man can separate. Just like he did for Adam and Eve, so it would happen in the wine cellar. This place that Jesus wants to lead us, the, the, the great mystics of the church, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, they describe the wine cellar. You might think, uh, is that the right description of it? Um, Jesus, when he begins his ministry in the Gospel of John, 
his first sign is at a wedding banquet. And um, the language he uses with Mary, uh, his mother, he calls her woman, just like Adam called Eve woman. Do you see what the Gospel of John is trying to do? The Gospel of John, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, is trying to take you right to the wine cellar. And Jesus is showing us this place that you lost because of sin, because we were cast out of paradise. I'm leading you back there. In, in John chapter 6, in fact, Josiah, today, you started your very, very first set was about the blood of Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus says that his blood is our life. His blood is our life. My blood is true drink. So Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the wine. Jesus is the wine cell. And so he, and then when he gets to John 17, we have this, this uh, the, the, the beautiful images. It comes a couple chapters before what we just read. But I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is making you part of him. But where in the Gospel of John is the glory of the Father most manifest? In the Gospel of John, the glory of the Father is most manifest on Jesus' crucifixion. When he is raised high above the, uh, above the earth, that moment where he, what is glory? It's the unveiling of the goodness and greatness of another. The unveiling of the Father's greatness and the immensity of his love is made known when Jesus is raised above the earth. And we who are the body of the Lord, that mystery is reproduced in us. St. Paul prayed three times, let this thorn be taken from my flesh. And three times he was denied. My strength is enough for you. It is in your weakness that my power is brought to perfection. And so, what a curious paradox this place Jesus wants to bring us. It's the wine cellar of intimacy and friendship. The fathers of the church would say it's the place of, of sober intoxication, being inebriated with the, with the Holy Spirit. And it's a place of suffering. Because one cannot love except at one's own expense. As Christians, we suffer to love, to embrace the cross means, to love, and when we suffer, to suffer with and that's what Jesus did for us. And it's his mystery being reproduced in us. 
promised to pay Teresa, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, understood this mystery. I said we are a secret unto ourselves. We discover the truth of who we are when we give ourselves to Jesus and to those Jesus entrusts to us when we give ourselves to them in love. That's when we discover who we really are, the truth. Well, so let me tell you a little bit about John and Teresa. So they, I, I, and then I'll open it up to questions. Is that good? So um, I'm glad I only chose one principle. We, if I chose two, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Teresa is, um, um, she, her, her story is that uh, very early on, she had a love for Jesus. She wanted to be a martyr. Uh, her, her, her uncle had to stop her because she was walking down. Martyrdom was a very easy thing to have happen in Spain at the time because there, there were Muslims uh, who uh, loved to take Christians and make, make them slaves in North Africa. And so there was a slave trade thing going on. And, and, um, and so Teresa wanted to be a martyr. She was going to be a, become a slave. And that uncle stopped her. She was a little girl, like, you know, maybe not 10 years old. She was with her brother. And uh, uh, she lost her mother. Her dad was raising her in teenage years, kind of rebellious. Her dad knew that she was very passionate and uh, that uh, she was very prideful and that she'd be a handful for a future husband. He wasn't sure exactly what he's going to do with, but she was way too worldly to become a religious sister. There's just no way that could happen. So I don't know if she overheard that, those thoughts, or what happened, but at 18 years old, she snuck out of the house and joined the local convent. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> rebellious thinking. <laughs> <laughs> the, father, the father eventually forgave her after he found her. Could you imagine your daughter is all of a sudden just missing? <laughs> and she didn't tell you, you know, anyway, you find out she's in the convent, okay, you know. And, and, um, she, she develops a uh, reputation for holiness and for prayer. She, she really got into life of prayer. In religious life, you pray the Psalms, kind of like you do, uh, you pray the Psalms seven times a day, seven different hours, and, uh, and you end up going through, well, some, she, this wouldn't be true of her, but in the ancient, ancient times, first centuries in the church, you would pray all 150 Psalms in one day. I, I went on a retreat to try to do that. <laughs> After three days on the retreat, I had only gotten through ten songs. <laughs> you know, so could you imagine praying like that? I, I couldn't imagine. Anyway, at her time though, they were doing 150 songs in one week, and it was, so it was very prayerful life. And so by our standards, you go, wow, what a life of prayer. She says that it was a very comfortable existence and that she was being spiritually lazy. And uh, you see, no matter how much discipline you take on, after you kind of take on the discipline, uh, you can get used to it and settle for what's comfortable. And that, 
that's probably, as you go grow in the spiritual life, that's probably one of the biggest thresholds is, is it's easy to get in this rut where you, you've got what you think you need, and so Jesus, that's enough, and, and uh, I'll just keep on being a good Christian who does all these good disciplined things that everybody else knows I'm a good Christian, and I don't need, need any more intimacy than that, Jesus. And so if you feel that, that's something Christians have always, and that's what she confronted. The other thing that began to happen too, and I share this with you, is as she grew, drew closer to Jesus, every time she grew, drew closer to Jesus, she thought that she would have greater freedom uh, over, over sin in her life. She thought that she would have kind of a command of, so that she wouldn't be under the domination of um, of her weaknesses, but what she got instead, as she drew closer and tried to be more devout, was she saw that she was more sinful, and since she didn't even know she had, she, they, she was confronted with them. And weaknesses, she seemed to be more weak and pathetic the deeper she went to prayer. She told this to a spiritual director, and the spiritual director said, Stop praying. <laughs> it's dangerous. <laughs> and, and, you know, because if you pray too much, you know, you start getting 